This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. I feel the need, the need for speed. Ow! That's Tom Cruise playing a fighter pilot in the 1986 movie Top Gun. That's one portrayal of a soldier. Here's another. You smell that? Hey, fun, son. Nothing else in the world smells like that. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smells like... Victory. Now, no matter how reckless you might have thought that Tom Cruise's character Maverick was in Top Gun, chances are he came off better than Robert Duvall's Lieutenant Kilgore in the 1979 movie Apocalypse Now. While the characters in Top Gun might not have been all that well drawn, in Apocalypse Now, they just seem to be crazy. Both Top Gun and Apocalypse Now are war movies. And they're both emblematic of the kinds of stuff we were seeing in the media about war when they were produced. But they are very, very different films. So how do they fit together? And why do we care about a bunch of war movies anyway? Here to answer those questions on Fordham Conversations today is Robin Anderson. Anderson is an associate professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. And her new book explores the relationships between real war, the government, and the war stories that you see and hear in the media. Her book's called A Century of Media, A Century of War, and it's out now from Peter Lang Press. In that book, she argues that since early in the last century, the media has chosen to report on war in a way that's closer to entertainment than to more straightforward reporting, and that this has resulted in the public's willingness to buy into wars that they wouldn't have bought into otherwise. She says wars reported on using the frameworks of different stories, as a reality show in the case of Iraq, as a narrative of good versus evil in the case of World War II, or as a buddy story. Anderson began researching war in the media in the late 70s. We started out by talking about a story that Anderson tells at the beginning of her book when she was present as journalists interviewed Salvadoran far-right political leader Robert Dawison. He'd later be called the father of the death squads. Robin Anderson, welcome. Oh, it's my pleasure. You start the book with a story about going with reporters in El Salvador to interview this far-right political leader. Why was that an important moment for you, and why did you choose to tell that story first? That's when I first got interested in talking about the media coverage of war. I was a graduate student doing contextual analysis about war and media. The war in Central America was just beginning the war in El Salvador. It was before it had really turned into a full-blown civil war, and I followed journalists in the center of San Salvador when they were gathering news, and we came upon... Robert Debusan, who it would turn out years later was the father of the death squads. But we were kind of taken in this car up to a place in the in the fancy part of, of the Lomas in San Salvador, and we entered into this home behind the gates, and the gates closed behind myself and the news crew, and we really kind of thought we were stuck there. But we wound up interviewing Roberto de Busson, and it was uh, fascinating. The whole experience opened my eyes because when they were talking to, to de Busson, he was being coached and translated, and I went around and talked to to some of the, the guards that were up by the expensive swimming pool, and they told me that they were going to 
have to kill all of the communists, and it didn't matter if they had to get rid of 150,000 people, that that's what, that's what they would have to do. So that kind of inside information gave me the idea that what we were seeing on the news, that what I saw my friends gather and then how it got reported on the news was so different from the experience behind the scenes when I saw them gather the news. So how did it turn out on the news after you'd gone down to this place? The Over the years, there had been a pretty standardized frame, which I talk about in the book, which it was always portrayed. Violence in El Salvador was always portrayed as extremes from the left and the right, that the right-wing death squads were there, but that the left-wing was also killing people in equal numbers. Um, and this was consistent for years. As it turned out, the Truth Commission and the end of the Civil War and the United Nations Commission found that 85 to 90 percent of the killing had been done by the right-wing death squads and security forces that the United States was supporting. Now, what's interesting is that that first summer that I was there or that first year that I was there in 1981, pretty much the journalists already knew that the death squads were the ones that we had to fear. And the journalists had to fear them too. Um, and not really the leftists. <laughs> and it took 12 years in the Civil War to actually have that documented in fact. Whereas the United States media had a consistent framework of, of portraying it as extremes, equal extremes of the left and the right. Now you say that the coverage of El Salvador's war was framed in a certain way. Now, how was it framed, and is it the same way that armed conflicts are framed today? Well, what I, looking at the media coverage over an entire century gives you kind of a broad view. You see that the themes in the media coverage of El Salvador were about really about violence. They were about dramatic conflict, people running in the streets, those kinds of things. And that has a news entertainment value. It's conflict always gets people to watch. It's about ratings. It's anticipation of, of further bloodshed, those kinds of things. We have a lot of different things going on in the way we cover war in the 21st century. But you can look back and you can find the legacy of of entertainment frameworks. At that point, that's how the news covered it. But it, it's still focused on a type of news that was sensationalized and had had to live up to particular visual parameters. Now our news is the same. We just have different styles in the, by the 21st century. And those styles for covering war are about really focusing on the weapons, the bombs and how they drop so accurately. And now as we move into this this kind of what I find uh, kind of a new terrain of, of media representation and war, it's become far more focused on entertainment because some of the same visuals that we see on the nightly news are the same visuals that are in movies and on video games. And we have a very clear aesthetic style that pulls the viewer in to actually be the combatant, to, to, be on the, to be looking through the lens of dropping the bomb or being the first person shooter in the video games or even watching the, the bombs drop in film. So we've merged these styles, these graphic styles, from news reporting to film and video games. And so that's how I, I begin to look at the media, that it begins to be hard to distinguish what really happens in war from this kind of overpowering, exciting entertainment format that we assign to it. So it's sort of a first-person adventure type thing? Right, and you saw that in the first Gulf War where... For the first time, they put 
cameras on the on the noses of airplanes, and then you could you could visually follow the the camera all the way down and, and see it blow up. Now that was only about five percent of the bombs, and the vast majority of the bombs were not so smart. But what really emerged after the first Gulf War was this kind of exciting bombing, you know, looking through the eyes of the warrior. And that has just developed steadily over the 1990s and now into the 21st century. And what's so interesting about that, Nora, is it's the same technologies that actually give the weapons their signals and that then also creates a a kind of visual style that we're used to not only by for in video games, but also we often see those kinds of images that come through on the news. Um, now, talking about different sort of narratives like the first person adventure or the, you know, violent extremism on two sides, you talk in the book about Abu Ghraib. And you say that that scandal was especially hard for people to take because they sort of didn't know where to, not only because it was horrifying for people, but also because they just sort of couldn't figure out where to where to put it in terms of the narratives that they were familiar with from from war stories. What happened with that, and how do you talk about it ultimately sort of being tamed? Right. Well, in any war, there are going to be images that are dark and unpleasant, and they're going to emerge. And I call those the uncontrollable images, and Aubrey Grabe was one of them. Um, advertisers are very key not to see horrifying images of dead civilians or things like that. And since this is a commercial medium, it's hard to get those on. Now, some of us might say those are in really bad taste and we don't want to see them, but wars are carried out in our name. Uh, and in a democracy, we actually need to be on board with the government or it becomes very difficult to carry out a war. And so over the years, the Pentagon has enacted information strategies and managed information. But invariably, there are um, images that are going to emerge like Abu Ghraib. And uh, what I write about in the books is the way that uh, hosts such as Rush Limbaugh and others started saying that these images looked like plain, good old American pornography, so that our our culture of adult entertainment, then they started to be understood within that framework. And what happened with that is that for for a long time, we kind of forgot about a kind of more investigative reporting uh, parameters that might have been applied. That stuff has come out, but over the years and slowly, people like Seymour Hirsch continue to do those kinds of investigations in The New Yorker, but a lot of the media dialogue on the cable talks and other words was talking about how Lindy England was a dominatrix. Our ideas about gender in our culture and sexuality kind of took over real policy issues. Why do you think that people bought that? Because if you look at the pictures, it's clear that it's not good old American pornography. Why do you think that people sort of accepted that from from Rush Limbaugh and others? There are pictures of horror that are that we see in wartime that it's very hard for us to accept and see. They're very emotionally difficult to see pictures that horrible without having it explained in some logical way that we can understand. We tend to want to distance ourselves from them and put them out. And this is a theme that I talk about throughout the book of what happens when we see images of horror that aren't explained in a broader political context for us to really understand. Of course, the Pentagon and the administration don't wa didn't want to talk about how a whole series of memos were being written whereby they were condoning the kind of treatment of prisoners. And, and this was going 
on, of course, not only in Abu Ghraib but elsewhere, without that information to understand it and then apply some pressure so that that doesn't happen again, the public has very little place to go with their emotion and sentiment. And so in these ways, whenever we see these kind of... the. the photojournalism of the slaughter bench of history, if you will, they have an emotional impact and they then they distance us from the realities of conflict. And that's one of the big problems of, of trying to represent war. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning with Robin Anderson. Anderson's new book is A Century of Media, A Century of War. It's out now from Peter Lang Press. In that book, Anderson talks about how the U.S. government has sought to manage information and images from wars throughout the last century. But she says that some images leak out, like the pictures from Abu Ghraib that hit the mass media in April of 2004. Anderson says these images disorient and dismay Americans who aren't accustomed to seeing real images of war. Anderson calls these uncontrollable images. Let's return now to our conversation. What are some other uncontrollable images? Well, the most uncontrollable images that I talk about in the book, of course, were the Tet Offensive uh, during the Vietnam War. This was a, had a huge impact on American media and American public opinion because up to that point, the war had been talked about by Walter Cronkite and others on network television as a just, winnable, clean war that we could see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it was okay. The Tet Offensive, uh, journalists, all they had to do in Saigon is walk out their door, see images of wounded soldiers, see the famous shot, uh, shot heard around the world of the execution of the North Vietnamese general by a South Vietnamese general. These images were such a shock to the American public that they simply, shortly after that, by the end of March 1968, the majority of public American public opinion was against the war. And at that point, President Johnson said that he would not run for re-election. And uh, documents uh, revealed by Daniel Ellsberg of meetings that he had with officials in the White House have him saying, uh, the country is not behind us. They're against this war. I'll go down. Um, and he decided uh, that he would not run again. So, so we know that these kinds of images have any huge impact. Now, that's a very controversial um, story of the Tet Offensive, but the point is that the images of people dying vastly escalated on the media, um, and these images were in contrast to the way the military always talked about the war, that it was something they could win, and it was a just war. And... Um, it just didn't jive with what was happening on the ground. Now, there's been a lot of control and controversy about showing images of the dead in our current conflict. Talk about that. One of the most important things, I think, uh, for American journalists and media is talking about the soldiers themselves, the American soldiers. Before the invasion of Iraq, there was so many stories about the soldiers with Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather going up along the border in Kuwait um, before they were going to carry out the invitation, interviewing a lot of soldiers, a lot of discussion about them and how they were uh, you know, very heroic to be there um, protecting America. 
as the war car- has carried on, and we're up to over 3,000 or approaching or over 3,000 um, Americans dead, in the aftermath of the invasion and as things got have continued to get worse, we don't hear much from those soldiers anymore, and particularly we don't hear uh, a lot of the wounded, and most particularly we don't see the pictures of the coffins coming back from overseas. Um, Dover Air Force Base was closed during the first Gulf War, and quietly after that, all the military bases had been blocked from having the media come on and see those very compelling images of the flag-draped coffins and having the soldiers in full dress play taps as they march across the the tarmac uh, for their fallen brothers. These are very powerful images which bring home to the public that people are actually dying in a war. And those images have been carefully edited out of the mainstream media picture with very little with very little contestation from the major media. In the first Gulf War there was a lawsuit against it on part of the alternative media, something that I documented in the book did not get any media coverage in the mainstream media. And now it's just become accepted convention that we don't show those images anymore. What I tried to point out in the book is without that realization that, that soldiers die and telling their stories, we are not only distanced from, from the civilian casualties, but from the humanity of the soldiers who have to go and really, in our name, do terrible things. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest tragedies. One movie you talk about a lot in the book is Top Gun which starred a very young, very sex-symbolish Tom Cruise engaging with both Kelly McGillis and also a sort of vague Soviet enemy. Now, I know that Top Gun's interesting now, at least in part because of the fact that it's been shown that there's a really close resemblance between some scenes in that movie and President Bush's famous Mission Accomplished speech on the USS Abraham Lincoln back in 2003. But in itself, absent all that stuff... Why is Top Gun interesting? Well, you know, somebody wrote a whole book about that. Um, and it has Reagan's head. The cover of the book has Reagan's heads on a muscular body. Um, and it's the argument is that in movies can stand for kind of a, of a national attitude. And that the kind of Reagan-era movie genre was... If you recall, it wasn't just Top Gun, but it, but it was also Sylvester Stallone and, and Cobra and uh, some of those uh, those movies that we we had different from the World War II heroes. These were individual characters again who were wielding the great technologies of war and um, being very sexy, doing it. Really, part of the subplot of the movie Top Gun is that him getting the girl. And there's a lot of metaphors in the movie, as you just said, a word engage and target, and that are that that, that are double entendres on on sexuality as well as um, warfare. So so that's why the 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 movie is seen as such a as such a powerful film. But um, these films also were reworking the Vietnam era in the post-Vietnam era of the, of the late 70s and 80s. A spate of movies came out, and I, I write about this in the book, that the war began to be remembered, and they created a whole new genre of really disturbing types of movies that really criticized the military, everything from Apocalypse Now to Platoon, movies that criticized the the military itself, and just portrayed war as impossible to fight uh, and just destructive of, of the personalities of the soldiers and, and, and the individuals. And, 
And this whole 1980 genre, Top Gun being really at the top of them, was really about reasserting a kind of a military attitude through the individual player, right, through the individual warrior. It's impossible through words to describe what is necessary to those who do not know what horror means. Horror. Horror has a face and you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. They are truly enemies. are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This is what I call a target-rich environment. You live your life between your legs, Mav. That was a clip from the very manly movie Top Gun. And you just heard Marlon Brando in one of the most disturbing moments from the very disturbing movie Apocalypse Now. I had this morning on Cityscape a look at slavery in New York City, past and present. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We're talking today on Fordham Conversations about war in the media. My guest is Robin Anderson. She's a professor at Fordham, and her new book is A Century of Media, A Century of War, out now from Peter Lang Press. Before the break, we were talking about Top Gun. Anderson told me that that movie represented a period in the American media where war started to be presented in a very different way than it had been in the late 70s and early 80s. Let's return for the conclusion of that conversation. So if you remember the sort of uh, late 70s, early 80s is a time of disillusionment in pop- popular media. Um, you have MASH on TV, you have these, these movies, uh, Full Metal Jacket, those kinds of movies. And then the sort of mid 80s as being this time of like reassertion of masculine American power with, you know, Rocky wearing the stars and stripes trunks and all that kind of thing, fighting the Russian guy. Right. Where are we now? I mean, how would you describe our current media era? Well, if we're going to stick with movies, that's a chapter about Black Hawk Down, right? The the grand narrative of war uh, really came out of what, 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 media critics like to call the grand narrative wars were really World War II. And that was a whole genre that developed after World War II. And it was really about the the group under attack. But the war was just, people died, but they died for a just cause. And the military hierarchy was very legitimate in uh, Saving Private Ryan, the classic World War II uh, movie. The Tom Hanks character, Captain Miller, he's the common man, but he really rises to the fore and he provides leadership. And, and, and he dies at the end, but right when he dies, the American flag comes up and you have the words of Abraham Lincoln, so that he's died for a cause. And therefore, all of the horrors that happened in World War II have really resulted in, in this narrative about war being really a kind of a bonding for men. After Vietnam, the genre of war film, they just took that whole thing apart, and the military was no longer legitimate. 
and soldiers turned against one another. The 1980s, that's why you had to create the individual character, and now we see the eyes of, the, of through, the, through a single warrior. In the 21st century, with Black Hawk Down, we have still a team, a team of, of people fighting, but the graphic realism is of, of war and combat is greatly exaggerated, and it's, it's very asceticized, even though it's thought to be very real and powerful. But the most important thing about Black Hawk Down is the lines before they go into combat. And they say, there's no, I, the only thing that matters in war is taking care of the buddy next to you, is, is when the bullets start flying, you just make sure that you come back and no one gets left behind. So that whole idea that this is a just cause and that the war is really legitimate is right out the window. But you still have the men in Black Hawk Down dying, dying really horribly in, in horrible combat. So the way I see this narrative as different from World War II is in World War II, the war was just. For the 21st century war, we still have the acceptance of soldiers dying, but now it doesn't even have to be a just cause. And, of course, we know this goes along very much with the war in Iraq, which now all the reasons for going to war with the weapons of mass destruction were challenged and now pretty much understood um, to be a way to justify the war rather than the real reasons for going to war. And so that's what I find really disturbing about the movie Black Hawk Down. All right, gather around. Our six 64 is down. We're going back in to get them. That's crazy. Is there anyone alive on that? Doesn't matter. No one gets left behind. You know that. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking of a few movies. I'm thinking of Band of Brothers, which fits in with what you were talking about, although it's a miniseries and not a movie. But I'm also thinking about a couple of movies that are about the first Gulf War, the uh, Jarhead movie, which came out a couple of years ago, and also Three Kings, with which both portray war as kind of just being an icky situation that you're in that demands behavior which is not appropriate in other contexts, but right. not as sort of a cause or something that you're moving forward in. There's a real lack of authority figures, things like that. What, I don't know, what kind of entertainment war genre would you put those in? Well, that is really interesting because it, we talked a little bit before about how during the first Gulf War, the visuals were very different from any war because of the new technologies of the smart bombs and the video cameras on the smart bombs, and it became a celebration of air power. That didn't really last as a, as a it didn't impact a movie genre very much because we had very little, little movies that came out that kind of celebrated the Gulf War. And I think precisely because there wasn't this kind of, of even, uh, measured conflict where one soldier uh, fought against another soldier, right? And so you had various heroes such as Norman Schwarzkopf and other people that were television heroes, but they were heroes for the small screen. And the problems with the at the end of the first Gulf War with uh, with the bombing of the of the retreat of the Iraqis um, and not going in and, and finishing it and things like that led to a genre that was very ambivalent about war. Three Kings, as you describe, is that way, but also Courage Under Fire. Don't forget Courage Under Fire and because the Meg Ryan character is basically the victim of a, of a mutiny uh, on the part of her soldiers that she's in, in charge of, and she dies there. And it's about Denzel Washington um, playing uh, a character who actually, in the movie, which is a situation that mirrors the reality of the first Gulf War, he is portrayed as somebody who um, told his uh, tank gunner to 
uh, to fire on another tank thinking it was the enemy, and instead they wiped out one of their own tanks, and it was a situation of friendly fire. So he's so there. It's all complicated by women for the first time in the military, um, friendly fire issues, uh, bombing from the top down, and not engaging in hand to hand combat. And it didn't translate. In fact, many people, um, uh, and I agree with this position, think that the real celebration of the first Gulf War was through the lens of World War II, and it, and it really came out with Steven Spielberg saving Private Ryan. And it had to be set, then we had to move back to a, a World War II setting to celebrate war. The, the first Gulf War couldn't really celebrate war because there was a lack of hand-to-hand combat. And that's what tests the heart of the fighting man, and that's where the war hero genre is really important. And that's also the problem with representations of war that simply celebrate weaponry. Now I'll close with this last question, and it might seem kind of obvious, but why should people care about this book? What I found by looking across a century of war that you find patterns, you find some of the same justifications, you find some of the same practices you find different ones as they evolve into the future, but it really gives you a view of what war is really like and the historical consequences of war to see how it's fought and to see how it's justified over a long period of time. It really gives you some insights um, into some of the things that present leaders say about our enemies and about the need to go to war. And I think one of the things that journalists and television commentators would really benefit from, particularly when leaders make particular statements, that they would really benefit from knowing some of the history of past presidents and their justifications for going to war or some of the ways in which the soldiers are portrayed previously and some of the things that happen that I call the counter-narratives of war, the unpleasant aspects of war. We should remember those things before we go to war. Well, Robin Anderson, thank you so much for coming in. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Nora. That was Robin Anderson. Anderson's an associate professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. And her new book out now from Peter Lang Press is A Century of Media, A Century of War. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.